0: Hello and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tinellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. And before I welcome my next guest, I'm proud to announce this episode is brought to you by Writing New South Wales, a Talking Aussie Books partner for 2022. Writing New South Wales is the peak body for writers and writing in New South Wales. They aim to support writers by helping them navigate the publishing industry and build long-lasting careers. Writing New South Wales aims to promote a vibrant and diverse writing culture through courses and events by providing information and advocacy along with networking opportunities. To find out more about this wonderful organisation, you can visit writingnewsouthwales.org.au. Better still, avoid missing out on important industry information, course enrolments and other opportunities by signing up to Newsbite, the Writing New South Wales weekly e-newsletter. Tony Jordan is a best-selling, award-winning, Melbourne-based author of six novels. Her debut novel, Edition, was an international best-selling novel, which was also shortlisted for the highly prestigious Miles Franklin Award. Tony's new novel, Dinner with the Schnabels, was recently released by Hachette, and listeners, whilst it was the first of Tony's novels I've read, it certainly won't be the last. A delightfully humorous and insightful look at marriage, love and family, I galloped through Dinner with the Schnabels and I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to chat with Tony about it on the podcast this morning. Welcome, Tony. Thank you, Claudine. It's so wonderful to have you and I wanted to say congratulations on this new novel. Thank you so much. It's been a while, hasn't it? (laughs) It has been a while. I've had a a little break. It's good to have a little break, but yeah, yeah, it's good to be back as well. Indeed. Indeed. Now, it might be bad taste to say that I enjoyed reading about Simon and his struggles. Perhaps (laughs) it's better if I say that I appreciated gaining insight into the struggles that he and his family faced in the wake of his business going under and how he came to terms with what had happened. So I wondered, Tony, then if you could tell me a little bit about the story and what inspired you to write it.
1: Well, I think it really came out of 2020 Claudine to tell you honestly nobody had a good year really in 2020 and I was really watching a lot more television than I would have otherwise watched and I really found myself drawn to you know shows like Ted Lasso and Schitt's Creek and those kind of you know heartwarming sounds like a sledge like it's something wrong with being heartwarming but I really, with everything going on in the world, I just wanted something that was about the good in the world, if you know what I mean. So I, I started to think about the book and and what I wanted to say about it. So I was trying to capture that vibe. I wanted to have a man who you know, as you say, was down on his luck. Simon has lost his business in the lockdowns and is not having a very good time. And he's surrounded by these people, the Schnabel's, his in-laws, and he's trying his best, but poor Simon doesn't really quite get it. Basically, his his in-laws give him a job to do, he has one week to make a garden in the backyard of his wife's best friend, and circumstances conspire against him, but he also conspires against himself. So, you know, we get to see if he can manage it.
0: It was a really terrific insight into the psyche of somebody who'd been through quite a traumatic event in his life. <laughs> I think it really, it really Thank was. You. Now, the Schnabels who are, as you say, Simon's in-laws are not the easiest people to get along with. Well, not for Simon anyway. The relationship his wife, Tansy, enjoys with her family, her siblings in particular, isn't something Simon understands, is it? No. So he's an only child
1: with kind of distant parents. And this idea of everybody being in, a, in everybody's pocket and ringing all the time and coming around and <laughs> and kind of, <laughs> you know, having their two cents say about everybody else's business, he finds it quite surprising. He's grateful for it in a funny way because Simon and Tansy have two children of their own, and, and he likes the idea that those children will always have someone there for them. But yeah, it's, a, it's all a bit bemusing, and he, he doesn't quite know how to handle them.
0: He's a particularly flawed character, I think. I mean, he's can I just,
1: I love that he's a flawed character. And it's very interesting to me that often I get these. Very few few from readers, actually, mostly from people in the publishing industry who say things like, can't you write more likable people? And I kind of think, oh, it's the flawed people I find so fascinating. I mean, they're the ones that I want to see why they're like this and what could possibly be going on in their heads and And what, you know, what is happening behind the scenes? But anyway, I interrupted your question. What were you going to say?
0: Not at all. Not (laughs) at all. I think that's fascinating. Look, there's a lot to be said about the unlikable character. And I think like you, they make the more interesting subject for sure. But in in relation to Simon, yes, he is a a flawed character and and he's wallowing in self-pity after the failure of his business. And he seems to have a great deal of trouble motivating himself to do anything very much. In fact, I, I would go so far as to say he was, He was severely depressed. Yeah, well, yeah, he viewed everything around him through this like lens of failure, didn't he?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And you know, this is the kind of reason. This is another one of the reasons why I love characters like this because of the differing responses you get from people. Like, everyone has been really generous about this book. All the all the readers who've spoken to me have told me how much you know they loved it, and etc. But some of them say, "Oh my God, Simon is so annoying." I just about wanted to kill him by halfway through <laughs> and other people say to me it's so obvious that he's in the middle of a major depressive incident why is nobody helping him more so just those kind of those varying responses the nuance of writing a character you know where is he like this is he like this you know it it, 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 it you know some of the book club discussions that people told me about have been, you know, very illuminating about about uh, the way readers think and about their lives, about their priorities, and their personal experiences with depression and how it strikes people. So you know that's the beauty of writing. A character that's kind of shades of grey instead of black or white.
0: And I think what I particularly loved about this book, Tony, is that you haven't shied away from talking about the lingering effects of COVID, the financial fallout for those who lost work or businesses, and the psychological impact that had on many people. None more so than than the people of Melbourne who endured multiple lockdowns and some of the toughest restrictions in the country. And I know that many writers have avoided dealing with this in their writing. So on that basis, I'm really interested to understand if this was something you were concerned about when you were writing Dinner with the Schnabels, or were you keen to explore post-pandemic issues?
1: Well, Claudine, it was actually a big decision. (laughs) I had a lot of chats with my friends, you know, my novelist buddies, and a few of them said, that's it, I'm writing my next novel set in the 70s. I just refuse (laughs) to engage. I give you a psychic prediction now for the next like Two years you're going to see a lot of historical fiction like it's just going to dominate I just kind of felt that because I was writing it in 2020 if I did it carefully I thought I had an opportunity to capture a particular moment in time and and make it something that spoke to what how we were all feeling so that took a couple of things it took work obviously like I went back and I knew it would be coming out early this year. So I went back and looked at the 1917 Spanish flu epidemic, how long that lasted, how people's behavior changed through the course of it. And I also, you know, kept up to date. My wonderful editor, Emma, and I would do periodic kind of peels through the manuscript to check that, you know, there was nothing that was going to be jarringly wrong because all it, All it would have taken was some new rule or some new lockdown and it no longer would have worked. But I was also very lucky that everything kind of rolled out as I would imagine it rolling out. But at the same time, I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to mention the pandemic. I didn't want to talk about it at all. This was going to be purely and simply about recovery, about how people put their lives together.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating to me because interestingly, that's something I'm exploring in my current manuscript. And I... You know, I think when we we're in the grips of the pandemic, a lot of writers were asking that question, is that something that we're going to be writing about yeah, in yeah. the future or is it something that, you know, will date our work? And a lot of people want to move past it. They don't want to dwell on it. Yeah, it was so interesting to me that you were, you you took the bull by the horns with this <laughs> novel and <laughs> you squarely dealt with, not so much, you know, the actual, like the... the nitty- oh, nitty- yeah, the so that was
1: important it. that I didn't mention any of the details. Like, I don't want to go through the details again and I'm sure nobody else does. But you don't have to because it's also fresh in our minds. So all I have to say is, you know, there's a mask in the bottom of Tansy's bag or something and we all know, you know, we all know, so it can be very light but the repercussions can be very deep.
0: Indeed they can. Now, I think I mentioned that you were from Melbourne and I'm sure like many other people, you witnessed firsthand the devastation wrecked upon businesses and families by the pandemic. But was there anything in particular that you needed to research in order to bring Simon's experiences to the page? It was a pretty research light book, actually. I've written research-heavy books
1: before, Claudine. Like I've I've written historical fiction and books that dealt with quite specific um, mental health disorders. Um, but this was really about the the empathy involved in getting into the mindset of a middle-aged man, which I'm not. <laughs> I'm not a 42 year old man. Surprise! Um, and and tr- try and I don't have any children, and I don't have brothers, and I live in Melbourne, and the, my whole family it does not. I have no family here, so it was really about that active creative empathy that that fiction is just so good at, like the whole beauty of fiction is that it forces you to see the world from the perspective of someone who's not you. You know, it forces you to think about what life is like for somebody who's different from you. And that's part of the experience for the reader, but it's also part of the experience for writers. It forces you to sit down and go, okay, if I was this person, how would I see the world?
0: So on that, I wanted to know if, it, if there was a particular reason you chose to write the story from Simon's point of view.
1: Interesting. I deliberately chose a male protagonist and I've never written an entire novel. I've had like my novel Nine Days has nine different first-person narrators and a couple of those are blokes. But I've never done a whole novel from the point of view of a male before. There's a couple of things. The things that I was reading about that time were all male narrators. And I was kind of admiring that, again, that act of entering into somebody else's skin, somebody different from you. But I also kind of think that for me, myself, the lockdowns weren't difficult. Right? I'm kind of an introverted person. I work at home by myself anyway. I don't have any children. My parents have, my mum's passed away and my mother-in-law's passed away and my dog passed away. Uh (laughs) So it's all, uh, I I have really very little uh, people to worry, very few people to worry about and a job and a personality that lends itself to sitting inside and reading books and that's fine. My husband though, my darling husband who is, an outdoor, social, exercise person who loves people, who is very extroverted, found it really enormously difficult. And it was really challenging for him. Watching him be challenged in ways that were not challenging for me was a really interesting kind of eye-opening experience about the way, um, I mean, we've been together for nearly 30 years. So we know each other pretty well and we know how each other operates pretty well. But seeing him so challenged by something that was very easy for me, kind of opened my eyes a little bit about about what life is like for him. And I kind of think that, of course, this is passing as it should, and it's ridiculous. But I kind of think that men do measure themselves more by their the traditional markers of success than women probably do. And Again, that's a, just a gross generalisation, but mothers and, and other people, like had I've chosen Tansy, Simon's wife, as the main character, I feel no doubt that she would have found strength in looking after her children and the social and, and community connections that she had, whereas Simon, without his business, without his staff, without his clients, without his, the people that he met through business, he was a, a completely adrift and and that's the feeling I wanted to explore, that feeling of being a trip.
0: So back to the schnabels for a moment. Not only does the arrival of Monica, Simon's new sister-in-law, wreak havoc in Simon's week, but it's also a momentous occasion for his wife and her siblings, um, not to mention the mother-in-law, Gloria. Moreover, they haven't been able to formally grieve the passing of their father two years earlier because of COVID restrictions. That was a very commonplace occurrence, wasn't it?
1: yes a lot of people that I
0: spoke to lost people during that time
1: and you know if the funeral was allowed it was limited to 10 people or whatever yeah and it just it it didn't allow people to kind of grieve properly or or move on
0: properly yes absolutely I think that was one of the most heartbreaking consequences of the pandemic to be honest yeah. yeah. Speaking of the arrival of Monica, or Mon, as she was known throughout the novel, Simon's new sister-in-law, half-sister to Tansy, it comes at a particularly difficult time for Simon. He, as you say, was has been volunteered to to landscape <laughs> this friend's backyard for the long overdue memorial service for his father-in-law. But given that he's basically spent the previous two years on the couch, unshaven and unemployed, it's a bit of an ask, isn't it? It shouldn't be a
1: bit of an ask. Like he's more than capable. Yeah. Um. It's just a mountain for him from from where he is. And so you know the the trick is always to how do you motivate yourself when when you're feeling like that? I mean, it's not just as simple as getting up and doing it because we all know we've all we've all either the, ourselves been in those situations where we know we have to do something but we just cannot make ourselves do it yeah um or we've known uh, somebody like that so you know the idea that he has to you know I want it to be a garden specifically because you know gardens have a very uh, a deep sort of place as a metaphor about um you know seeds are about potential and and living things are about all the risks and rewards that come with living things and yeah. the physical labour required in like a garden is, is the opposite of Simon where he's been on the couch. So all those things, it's not just a physical challenge for him. He also has to, uh, has to deal with this idea of, of starting afresh and, and the kind of insult to his ego about making this beautiful space um, for a family that's not his a family who is living in this um, tiny little fat flat because they lost, he lost their house basically. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and, and a lot of stuff pressing down on him.
0: He has a week to do it, a week to get his act <laughs> together and the novel's events run over the course of that week. Did you always have it in your mind to do it this way? Well, it, it,
1: that was a bit of a later kind of addition because what what actually happened was when I was thinking about it and when I was partway through, I thought, Oh my God, this is the lowest stakes novel in the history of novels. Like, it's can this guy get the garden done? I mean, it's not really, you know, can, uh, you know, can you defuse a nuclear bomb or something? Like, it's extremely low stakes. And I kind of thought to myself, how can I? Try and generate a bit of narrative energy from this, right? From this guy work, working out if he can make a garden or not. So I, I really just stole the that kind of. I know you have a lot of uh, writers who listen in to you, Claudine, and they will know that it's. There's a common technique used in thrillers and um, those kind of books, adventure kind of and thrillers, called a ticking clock, which is you know not you have to do something, save the world or whatever. Yeah. Thing is and, you know, the, the time pressure is upon you. So I've, st- <laughs> I've stolen this technique from thrillers or, you know, kind of adventure novels except it's, it's you know, not the most thrilling thing in the world. So I've, I've tried to use the same technique as you would if, if it was diffusing a bomb except it's making a garden just to try and keep the energy up. And I, I'm actually, I didn't know if it was going to work or not, but I'm actually really pleased Like um, people have been saying things, like texting me things like, oh, my God, I'm up to Wednesday. He's done nothing yet. I want to get a ute and do it myself. Like (laughs) you're feeling the pressure on it, which is great.
0: Indeed, and that was something that I absolutely felt. And I was worried for him and simultaneously (laughs) annoyed by him. I kind of wanted to give him a kick up the backside and say, get a move on, dude, because it's not going to be finished in time. And he was going to let everybody down if he didn't actually get it done that's made me so happy to hear that
1: Claudine that's exactly what I wanted
0: and I just thought it worked so incredibly well and I wondered therefore whether it was something that you deliberately had chosen to do yeah Um, I did I did spreading it out I'm not
1: really big on drafting I like to make my (laughs) ideas on the way through so I can fix it up you know as I go but you know I I was three or so chapters in and I thought oh this is just if I spread this over time yeah. And, and, the, and the only thing is a garden that's just not enough. I need to yeah. kind of rev this a bit. Uh. <laughs> Otherwise, it's not going to work. I need people to want to really keep reading. I love, you know, the whole goal with plotting for me is this idea of unputdownable. Like, that's what I'm really aiming for. Yeah. And I, I think the tight time frame helped that.
0: Absolutely. It was brilliant. In many ways, I think Simon was an unreliable narrator. His perception of the events happening around him, whereas I said earlier, viewed through the lens of this depression and sense of failure. Was this deliberate or more about the way the story came about? No,
1: that was absolutely deliberate. I love an unreliable narrator. Yeah. And what I really love, which was such when I realized that I could do that in this book, that made me so happy, is the reader knows more than the narrator than the protagonist. So he's not lying at any point. Like he's genuinely telling you exactly what he thinks and exactly what he thinks is happening around him. Of course, it's absolutely not what's happening around him. He's wrong in yeah. so many ways. Yeah. And the reader, hopefully, I've done a little prologue, which I normally don't do, but the prologue was also about signalling that Simon has no idea what's going on. Mm. And and um, the reader is hopefully always a step ahead of Simon. And that gap between what Simon knows or his comprehension of the world and what the reader is comprehending about the world. um, I just love that also. That's the kind of thing in stories that make me happy because it means that the reader is not just sitting there sort of passively, passively absorbing the story as it comes to them. It means that they're an integral part of how the story works.
0: Yeah, absolutely Absolutely. wonderful. I really enjoyed that part of the story. We haven't spoken much about Gloria Simon's (laughs) mother-in-law, but she was a particularly fabulous character, I felt. She was someone with a dramatic streak, but also brutally honest and uncompromising. So I wanted to ask you, Tony, was she inspired by anyone in particular? (laughs) Look,
1: my mother was certainly not like that. But I have taken a couple of the lines that my mother would say and given them to Gloria because my mother was very, also very combative. Like she loved to argue. And if you, whatever position you took, if you agreed with her, if you came around to her view in an argument, she would then take your position just so she could continue arguing with you. <laughs> um, she was just a contrarian like she just liked the opposite of whatever was the thing so I have given a few of her kind of traits to Gloria but they're very different characters but one of the delights about Gloria was also watching her interactions with her three children and with Simon because she's really a slightly different person with all of them and I think often you do see that in families you see the parents being slightly different versions of themselves each of their children and that's partly about gender and it's partly about birth order, but it's also partly about the parents responding to what they think that child needs for them.
0: Yeah.
1: and it, The other delight is writing grown-up children who have never got over their childhood dynamics with each other. Mm. So... <laughs> that's really funny also to me that that you know people in their 30s and 40s are still behaving in the same kind of way they did when they were 10.
0: I would say Tony that despite Simon's trials and tribulations through this novel Dinner with the Schnabels is ultimately an uplifting story so I wanted to ask you if there was one thing that you wanted readers to take away from this novel what would it be?
1: Oh that's such a good question
0: there's a saying in
1: Stoic philosophy which is the obstacle is the way, you know, like you can find good in things. You can deliberately make a decision to say, okay, what, what is the good parts of that? And it's very hard to do that when you're at your lowest ebb and that's when you need other people maybe to help you do that. Like If Simon had asked for help a lot earlier, he would have been in a better position,
0: I think. Tony I know that you're going to be at the upcoming Sydney Writers Festival it must feel good to be able to get out once more to talk to readers and and other people at such events isn't it
1: it's so great and you know hearing talking to readers about this book and the frustration they feel with Simon and how they're really uh they they entered into this journey with him um, as he, as he, you know, tries to change his life, uh, life over the course of a week. It's just been fantastic.
0: Tony, you've come to a career in writing after holding a range of eclectic positions. <laughs> um, you were a molecular biologist, a quality control chemist, a TAB operator and door-to-door aluminium siding salesperson. So I guess it begs the question, did you always want to be a writer? Honestly, it had just never occurred
1: to me. I mean, I was always a a big reader at school and I just inhaled novels my whole life, but I just always felt that, I mean, I knew they were written. I mean, books were obviously written by somebody, but they weren't written by somebody like me. They weren't written by, you know, someone from the suburbs in Brisbane. My parents were not big readers. They had no, you know, artistic kind of thing. We didn't have art or music in the house. You know, it was a very... I was the first person in the family to go to university from school yeah. and it was just a, I thought people who wrote books were, I don't know, they lived in New York or they spoke French yeah. or they were, <laughs> <anyway>. <laughs> we were, my father was a greyhound trainer and, and mum had a TAV and we had greyhounds under the house and people like me didn't write books. Oh. It just would have never occurred to me. Oh, but,
0: but look what's happened. <laughs> <laughs> So what's the best thing about writing novels, do you think?
1: I love everything about it. I love sitting down every day and making up stuff for a living. (laughs) Like I can't believe that this is my job, Claudine. I get to make up stuff for a living. I I can't really, maybe it's because I did have a long working life before I started. Like I I worked for 20 years in full-time jobs before I started writing. So It's very easy for me to sit down every day at the same time and do the work. I'm not a procrastinator. I feel it's an enormous privilege. I think of all the very intelligent women in my family who had no, uh, did not have the opportunity to, to have the kind of education that I've had. And I just feel like I'm the, at the moment, I feel like I'm the luckiest person alive.
0: Oh, that's wonderful. That's so lovely to hear. Tony. you know, and you've mentioned before that many writers listen to this podcast and given all of your experiences, both in the publishing sphere and outside, I wondered if you had tips to offer those aspiring authors out there.
1: I think something that I've learned over the part, I signed my contract for my first book in 2006. So 16 years, I took two years to write that. So 18 years, I guess I've been doing this. Mm. And the, the really thing I've learned, to value the most is the process. You can never tell how the book's going to turn out. I've published six novels and I've written another two that were not published, couldn't sell. So I've written eight manuscripts, full-length full manuscripts, and you never can tell if it's going to turn out at the end. Unless you're on a good contract, you, you can never tell if it's going to get published. If it's published, you can never control how it's going to be received. All those things are outside of your control the only thing you can control is what you do every day when you sit down. So all I think about is the process. I divorce any of that that other stuff from my brain. And I think, you know, I have a high, I expect a high word count for myself, because I've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, I didn't when I was a beginner. But now I say to myself, my entire job today is a 1000 good words, if I can do a 1000 good words today, that's, that's my job. I don't have to worry about anything else. I never know the end before I start. That's like the last thing i figured out. <laughs> Just a thousand words and to enjoy it. I mean, there are so many different types of artistic pursuits that you can follow. You can do any kind of visual art. You can paint or you can draw, you can crochet, you can cook. Like there's a million ways to fill that beautiful part of your brain and make art. It, it it doesn't have to be writing. No one's making you. And if if it truly is making your life painful, don't do it. Yeah. Like find something that makes you happy. Are you working on something else at the moment? I, I have nearly finished. finished. I can't really haven't really <laughs> brought myself to say goodbye to the novels. Yeah. Um. So I've actually written another one, which is about Kylie, the oldest sister, Tansy's oldest sister. Oh. So um, we'll get to see what her life is like and and what it's like being Kylie inside her brain. So that's proving fun.
0: And will we hear a little bit more about Simon and Tansy and Kylie's story? Everybody will pop
1: in. That's right. <laughs> Everybody will, will be there. I quite love those um, Marion Key's Walsh sisters books,
0: you know, oh, the five
1: of them. Me too. <laughs> so I kind of think now I'm going to just go around the whole family and, and, um, and see what life is like for all of them. Tony, where can listeners find out
0: more about you and your books?
1: I have a website, tonyjordan.com, and I have an author page on Facebook um, so you can search for me on on Facebook and I'll pop up. I'm doing a few festivals, as you mentioned, Sydney and then Queenscliff and then Williamstown. Um, so I will be kind of around and I'd love to say hi.
0: Fantastic. Tony, I thoroughly enjoyed reading Dinner with the Schnabels, a bird's eye view into the pressures of modern life and what it means to be a family. Thank you so very much for joining me on Talking Aussie Books today. Absolute pleasure, Claudine. Thanks. That's a wrap folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetinellis.com via Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.